0: Welcome to the Science of Caring podcast. I'm Dr. John Nelson, and I was the researcher in this project. And we have with us um, Lance Podziad, who is one of the main people I work with in this project. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about how we use story within predictive analytics to improve patient outcomes. And I should say that uh, this particular story that we're talking about today is in chapter five in our book, Using Predictive Analytics to Improve Healthcare Outcomes.
1: Yes. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Lance, as John said. Uh, At the time of the project, I was the assistant clinical manager of a nursing unit, and now um, I'm in a different role. Uh, I'm actually working with um, IT and particularly with the EMR that we use at at our health system. So, and I'm excited to be here and thanks for inviting me, John.
0: I'll give a little background for this story that we're going to talk about today. It began with doing an international study in Patient Falls. And we had selected this study. It was a three it was three different countries. It was Ireland, Scotland, and the United States, a couple of hospitals from the United States. And Lance was working at one of the hospitals in the United States. And we selected Patient Falls because I had asked all five chief nurse officers from each of the participating hospitals to list the most, uh, one of the, uh, to list the outcomes that they were struggling with the most. And that included what were they spending a lot of resources on, what were, did they know very little about despite all the resources being spent on it, and uh, which one was a panic point where there was a lot of pressure to improve it. And all five hospitals listed patient falls as one of their top. And it was actually, when I I scored it, it was actually the highest uh, scoring um, panic point, so to speak, or um, outcome of interest. And so we decided to study it. And what we found, and this is in um, chapter five, as I've stated, but what we found was the data from all five hospitals was very incomplete. And out of the, I want to say it was probably about 67, I'm going to Uh, guess. Hopefully I'm recalling that correctly. But out of the 67 variables that we looked at, there were only five that really had complete data that we could use for analysis. And those five variables were things like uh, the name of the hospital, the country, uh, what uh, year did the patient fall, what month did they fall, and what time did they fall. So you can't really use, uh, create a, a You can't create a good predictive model out of those five variables with falls as your outcome. The other challenge that we had was people were collecting data on only the fall patients and not the non-fall patients, because in order to understand why patients fall, you have to understand why they don't fall. So, uh, and this was interesting—an um, interesting learning of everyone in the group. Because when we think about studying falls, we do just study the uh, data from the patients that fell. But you want to understand in the same population of these sixty-seven variables that we're collecting. I I would collect it on the patients that fell, and then I would randomly select someone that the uh, that did not fall, and then I would study what are the variables that are most frequent in the fall population in contrast to the non-fall population. So that helps me uh, look at correlations and regressions and predictive analytics, etc. So because we only had fall data, we had to look at the sample of falls and falls with injuries. So we were able to look at fall why patients were injured during the fall. The Issue again, though, was we only had five variables that were complete. Um, And so what we ended up doing was looking at each of the three countries, but we were only able to explain about 3.2% of the variance of why patients were injured uh, because the data again was so incomplete. And so what we did after we presented the results to all the countries, with Lance's Hospital being in that group, uh, we decided, well, let's, uh, someone step up to the plate, so to speak, someone step, volunteer to um, collect complete data. And someone step up to uh, for volunteering to collect data on the fall patients and the non-fall patients. And then that was Lance's hospital out of that study, uh, international group that said um, we will be the hospital that will collect that. And it was, it was one of the most um, scientifically um, satisfying studies I've ever done because Lance was fantastic at collecting the data, he was passionate, he was communicative. So when you when you work with your team, because this is an important thing, it's not enough just to have good math, you have to have a good team to be able to follow through, to collect the data, to verify that the model of measurement is, is indeed being collected correctly. So Lance was a fantastic team member to work with, uh, and, he, and he's fun. So uh, so that was really, really good. That's the background, but Lance, I would be really interested to hear what your perceptions were when you were first approached about doing this study about patient falls and what were your views as you were starting to get involved in uh, using predictive analytics and story to study falls?
1: Yes. So <clears throat> backing up a little bit, I've always had a passion for math. And loved fantasy. I'm a big hockey fan, huge fantasy hockey guy, and so I was always playing around growing as a kid with analytics and you know trying to develop the best you know fantasy hockey team to last me for a whole season. And you know I've always been interested in data, um, analytics. At that time, um, even in professional sports, there was a lot of talk about this. And at work at that time, like I said, I was an assistant manager of this inpatient nursing unit. And we had just recently gone up on an EMR. And, you know, we, we were having various problems. And the biggest problem our unit had, in fact, we were the... I'm, I'm almost positive at that time. We were the worst performing floor as far as falls, you know, per, per patient admissions. And so there was definitely... Um, concern throughout the entire unit Um, and it was something we talked about a lot and it was kind of like we didn't know didn't know how to how to combat it Um, so I kind of just was thinking like all right well like there's got to be something in this EMR and a way to leverage it to like try and put together and find some key identifiers as to what makes a patient higher risk for falling. And so I, at the time, I actually was putting together like my own crackerjack predictive model, I guess you can say, with what me and the staff were kind of just talking amongst ourselves saying, you know, what I think this might be, you know, something in common, and this might be something, or this might be why. Because as patients were falling more and more frequently on our floor, we were you know, focusing more and more intently. In fact, we were getting a lot of buy-in too from leadership to say, hey, you guys do what you need to do, take the time you need to take, or let us know what you need to support you to try and help you guys work through this and identify how to how to, how to to curb this. And so we already started having and grasping some concepts or data points to look for and started putting together some information to try and identify these patients. And then that's where John and his, and he came, kind of came in right at, right at the, you know, cusp of that. And it just happened to be like a, a match made in heaven, which I could see why Henry Ford was like, yeah, you know what, John, we want to sign up. We got a guy and a, and a team of folks who are already engaged and really wanting to to know what to do. They just need, you know, like a someone alone to help them polish things up and, and give them some good direction because, man, they got heart and passion and they want to make it happen. Um, and we want to support them in doing that. So that's kind of like where our paths kind of combined.
0: So what was uh, so that's really interesting. I didn't uh, I hadn't heard that review um, so sequentially. So that was that was interesting for me too Lance. So thank you for that. So what was your initial response when you when we first met when I first started talking about yeah. <laughs> the predictive analytics and the process, etc.
1: Um I got super powered up and in fact I went back to the team I said hey guys they're listening to us we got (laughs) we got someone that actually this is what he does for a living and he's going to work with us and help us develop something um, and take us up to the next level which you know as a bunch of nurses there's only so much we understood or knew Um, and then you coming in and helping coach us along the way um, and give us some more data points and more things to think about and adapt uh, to our um, analysis, uh, and we were just we were just thrilled.
0: Cool. So, tell us, Lance, a little bit about some of the challenges you had in the data collection process. I know that you were using Epic as your EMR or your electronic electronic medical record. Um, so, I'd like to hear some of the challenges that you had in your data collection process.
1: Yes, the, uh, there were definitely barriers, uh, the first barrier being, like you said, we were brand new, fairly new on the EMR, um, and so learning to navigate it and find the data and information on the patients of interest, uh, that took time. Um, and then there was the added layer that, uh, because we were also new on the EMR, the nurses who were on paper just months prior were now you know, trying to learn and make sure they document everything appropriately within the electronic medical record. And so there was a lot of times where there was data not documented in the place it was supposed to be. Um, so it took extra time to dig and a little bit deeper and find out where um, the nurses or nursing assistants were putting um, those elements um, as well as providers too and the other barrier was because of the added time uh, you know an, an assistant manager uh you need to have um the buy-in from you know my the leadership so my manager you know to allow me to work on something like this versus other things that you know she you know would necessarily need me to do as, as far as other priorities um uh, once she saw the progress though that we were making and how engaged everyone was, she r- immediately removed that barrier and said, "You know what, L- you know, run with it. Just do what you got to do. Um, if I need you to kind of pause on that for something else, you'd let me know." So having that buy-in definitely helped. Um, and we were just getting started with that relationship-based care um, stuff, and we had we it was a fairly newly formed uh, unit governance group that we put together. So everyone trying to, you know, figure out what role they wanted to play or how much they wanted to engage because this is this. That was something new to them too. They've never been a part of something like that. They've always, I think the feedback they said is, I don't know. I've always just been, you know, someone who just comes to work and, you know, take care of the patients and go home. So that was that was a new concept for some folks as well. And and, and a lot. it took some time for people to kind of grow and get comfortable with speaking and sharing their opinion, and knowing that you know it's okay to not agree uh, on things. And there's nothing wrong with speaking your voice and and, and letting yourself be heard. If um, and sharing your opinions, whether they're the right thing or the or not to do.
0: Right, and and that and the uh, launch of relationship-based care and the formation of the unit practice councils and shared governance. That was just beginning about the time when we met, is that correct?
1: That is correct.
0: Because when I know when uh, when we presented the results, uh, boy, you must have come miles because man, I, you were just a, uh, an amazing leadership staff operation. I was just so impressed. And I know that was your patient falls committee, right? That when we started working together. Yes. Yep. But what, what what was fascinating about that was Uh, It was clear that you were the leader. It was clear that uh, they respected your opinion. But what was so fascinating is you could tell everybody was engaged. Um, Everybody was excited. Everybody wanted to improve this. So that was very interesting. But I don't want to get I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves in our story. So. When we started collecting, so you a step forward to be the hospital that would do this internationally, and you had a spreadsheet of how you were going to collect data. I think it was 33 variables we started with, and um, you were just amazing in collecting that data. So talk a little bit about um, what it was like to get that data as complete as you did because every cell in that Excel file was complete. And that was man. That was you were doing that manually at that time.
1: Yes, that uh, that is correct. Um, (laughs) I just go back to the fact that I had, you know, folks. I had the team was the wanting and needing something to change. I mean, I could just see it in the faces and everyone's every day. And with every next fall that happened, it was just like another blow to the team. So I was just dead set on you know doing whatever I had to do to get that information as clean and as accurately as possible so that way we could you know somehow have some some kind of formula to kind of help um, predict and identify our particular units at risk population because all I know is is the tools that we're using and the way we were it wasn't for a lack of trying I mean we were we were putting in a hundred percent on 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 trying to accomplish this with the tools we had. It just wasn't working. So it was like, all right, there's there's something fundamentally, you know, wrong here, and it we need to get to the bottom of it and right away. Uh, so that and and that was it. And and I think the team just wanted to see someone doing something, and so I just wanted to make sure that I was doing my part and doing it as best as I could, and and trying to exceed as many expectations as I can in doing it, just to help keep faith and just have people hang on and just know that there's there's a light at the end of the tunnel um, if we just stick with it and, and continue to work on this.
0: Yeah, and um, in that in that initial collection period, you collected data on uh, 170 patients who experienced a fall and 163 who did not experience a fall. So hand, hats off to you, as they say, and congratulations on that fantastic um, effort. Now, what was interesting then when I did come and present the data, because with relationship-based care, uh, um, we were working with creative healthcare management. And when I work with that company, when my company healthcare environment works with them, uh, we always do unit level presentations. And so you recall that um, I made a presentation as well to your unit your, your patient fall committee. So I came, I, I reviewed that we had collected it on 170 uh, fall patients, 163 non-fall patients. I reviewed the process, which they all knew that you were the one that was um, you know, doing all of that. <clears throat> and then I reviewed with them the 10 variables that we found that were predictive of falls. And so, it w- and this is again in chapter five in the book, but we found that diagnosis predicted Uh, was the highest predictor, then mobility, so those who were up with minimal assist. We found um, the last fall risk score, so the higher their last fall risk score, the more um, uh, predictive that was of their fall. Um, We found that the toileting process, uh, uh, use of a commode or urinal were the most predictive of falls. We found that cognition uh, rating was. we found that the admitting fall score was uh, a risk factor. Having a bed alarm, Um, was actually found to increase falls so that was interesting so people i think just trusted that once they put the bed alarm on they were safe and it was um they were they weren't using their critical thinking like this process was going to teach them We found that diuretics predicted uh, falls, but actually having a diuretic uh, meant you had less falls, but it's probably because they had Foley's in, I would guess, so they weren't getting up to the bathroom. And then finally, uh, if you educated your patients on fall risk, they were less likely to fall. But we ended up, uh, when we looked at all of those variables, we found that there were only three that were important. And we found it was the diagnosis, uh, was the number one that predicted 19.3%. We found mobility was the second one, being up with minimal assist, so you could walk, but you need a little assist. That predicted 11.2% of falls, and then the last fall score. And combined, we explained 35% of the variance of falls. Now there was a couple things that were interest that was interesting in this. First of all, you had three different fall risk assessments. You had your emergency department fall score you had your admitting fall score and you had the one that everybody used which was 4 points it was a and because it, it was it was only a 4 point fall scale everybody was at risk cuz everyone was a 3 or a 4 so basically no one was at risk it was meaningless but the one from the emergency department that i think was uh, it was like 27 it was big it was like 26 or 27 things they had to score. but what we found was is that that fall risk score was much more sensitive and we found that they were falling between 14 and 17. And so once they started approaching nine 10 11 that was telling you they're they're gonna fall pretty soon. But what I say those things because as I was reviewing, with the Falls Committee, just like I'm saying right now, you could f- <laughs> you could feel the excitement in the room. It was like Hitler, it, it was um, very rewarding for me because I could feel they were like very excited to hear this story. And then when we debriefed about the results, you guys were like on the moon with excitement because it's like we've never had the story of Falls told to us like this. And we've never had anyone explain to us which of the fall score risk assessments is the best. So it was really interesting for me to review that and have you guys um, so elated with having tools. And especially when you were feeling bad about these patients falling and it it felt like um, this was a solution for you. And uh, so anyway, take it from there and sort of what your response was with the team and what you did from that.
1: So the team, when you kind of came in and, and shared all that, it just you know things clicked. They the light of the tu- end of the tunnel was there, and we were like our like it just made sense. It put things in perspective, um, and it was interesting because it, I mean it's things that when you're practicing and you're on the floor taking care of these patients, you see and you hear and you it, you do have a moment of thought as to why a brief moment where you think or you remember or you recall or you 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 kind of make an assumption as to why you think something happened but you never really kind of ever put it all together um for for whatever reason and when you kind of came at I th- a lot of people in the room it was like they they kind of walked out there saying i, I kind of knew this like i you know like that makes sense like how did we not Notice this stuff sooner, um, and and when when and they were excited and it just spread like wildfire through the through the rest of the unit. Like, hey, listen, what we just heard, you know, and they were talking, and then all the other nurses were like, oh my gosh, and that's we we figured this all out from all that work and all that data that we've been collecting. And okay, well, like now what? That was the next thing. Is now what?
0: Well, and I remember uh, what you guys did is like you've. For example, learning that fall risk score, you started you put the fall risk at the edge of the bed, if I recall correctly. And so then once the fall started uh, increasing up to fourteen or thirteen, that yeah. you used that opportunity to educate. And so what and what was interesting is your fall stopped. I mean you were yeah. you were at four per one thousand patient days, which is is really high. And you went, for a while, you went to none. And mm-hmm. uh, you, you leveled out at 0. 0.6 falls per 1,000 patient days. And what was interesting is the what, what uh, became a predictor that wasn't among those initial 10 that we looked at was unit. And remember, critical care didn't want to participate in this mm-hmm. study. But so med surge had no falls, and the only falls that because you guys were all using this data and this action plan, and then uh, the critical care showed up as the risky place because they hadn't participated. So they wanted to be part of this too. So that was really interesting. But I but what I remember what what. Um, I don't remember if it was you that said this or this is what I heard. But over and tell me if I if I recall this correctly, what I observed and recall is you went from using a frequency graph and a subjective discussion of why patients fall to a strategy to inform patients. So what you did is you used those that that 26-item uh, risk score. You put the score at the end of the bed. Once it was reaching a particular level, the nurse then looked at the risk factors and then took that time to have an education session with the patient. This, These are the reasons you have to call us. And then they listed all the reasons with the patient. But what was fascinating to me about this, is this strengthened the relationship between the nurse and the patient, because number one, the the patient was feeling demeaned by always being told to get back in bed, but they didn't understand why. And so like, for example, up with minimal assist, it's like, well, I'm not that bad, and the bathroom is just a few feet away, but they didn't realize that being sick made them weaker than they were at home. So once they stepped a few feet and halfway to the bathroom, they realized they were too weak. And so they would fall, not realizing that the sickness and their um, poor mobility to start with, those two things combined, was making them fall. So the opportunity for the nurse was they would say, you are up with minimal assist, and you might think you can get to the bathroom because it's very close. And remember, bed one was the riskiest bed. Bed two was second most risky, second most risky, third, you were safe, and fourth, you were safest. So the further the bed was away from the room, the safer it was, statistically. And bed one and bed two, I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember that, but bed one and bed two were the riskiest because they were closest to the um, uh, bathroom. But but what it, what it provided was the the nurse was able to educate the patient the patient then understood oh i did not realize those were my risk factors so now i will call because i cannot make it that far um so there was all sorts of benefits they made they realized that the bed alarms actually increased risk uh so um, the, it created a false sense of security so there was all kinds of conversations that were occurring when we were talking um, you know, over the two years that I was working with you guys, uh, actually, I think it was closer to three years, uh, that I was working with you guys. uh, And so I was, these are the kinds of things that I was hearing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, Nursing, we're always trying to educate our patients, but we did look, take a step back and realize, like, we're not even telling these patients why they're at risk. And with that 27 points uh, fall score system, it gave us a lot of content to kind of explain and and, and kind of, if hey, if you were the patient, what would you, if someone told you you couldn't get up without assist, wouldn't it help you accept that if you heard the the reasons and the rationale why for yourself and, that, and then have that dialogue with the care team taking care of it, whether it be the nurse or the nursing assistant or even the physician's? Um, and we started seeing lights click in the patient's eyes. In fact, you know, as we were telling him some of the things and we were identifying our assessment, not only did it help them realize like, yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. But it also helped like, wow, you see me, you, you know, regardless of how little or how much time I, I see you throughout my day, you are noticing things that I'm probably not giving you guys credit for. So it really kind of helped that patient feels safe and know that, hey, we are the professionals and the experts at this. Please take our advice, at least while you're here, because um, we do this every day. And it just kind of helps, help not just with the pa- pa- uh, patients, but more so with the families too, because as you remember, um, you know families are a big key, a big key in this too, and, and helping, and, and their engagement is important as well.
0: So the other part that was really exciting is the clinical nurse specialist who was overseeing this relationship-based care project, um, which included this analytics. Is She was able to report that you had fallen, uh, no pun intended, from uh, four um, falls per 1,000 patient days to 06 and she was able to articulate that that calculated to a cost savings of $1.6 million. It was $1.6 or $1.7. It's in the book, but we did a very careful cost calc- uh, cost savings calculation. Uh, so it wasn't just a rule of thumb or something we pulled out of a book. This was very specific um, calculation to this hospital. So that was really good. But what was interesting is then we redid the analysis because we falls did stop but then they crept up a little bit to 0.6 per1,000 patient days and we f- we were uh, wanted to understand what was predicting it now And what was interesting is the action plans that they had implemented had um, for example, reduced mobility, all the way down to 1.4. So those who were at risk, the up with minimal assist as being a major risk factor, it was now hardly a risk factor at all because those who were at risk and weren't mobile, they were now staying in bed. So that was wonderful. We saw that diagnosis, uh, that went down from 19% to 8.6%. But what was interesting is what now was not in the first model as a predictor it was critical care now predicted about 10.4%. And as we discussed, uh, they weren't in the initial studies. So now it showed them that they needed to be in, in, uh, in the game because those who were having falls tended to be in the critical care and those who did not have falls tended to be in the med surge. Um, now, the other thing too Another risk factor that hadn't shown up before was polypharmacy. So those who are making, taking lots of medications. Um, now, within, within um, the discussion and the presentation, we found that um, behavioral health, nine of nine patients on um, psychotropic drugs, all nine of them fell. And so what was interesting, there were two interesting things in that. And um, I don't know if you were privy to this conversation, Lance, when we were talking with behavioral health, but we found number one, behavioral health tends to be over there. You know, it's sort of treated differently. And that's, that's all over. Everybody treats their behavioral health and mental health as a different department and they're not in the same conversation. Same with orthopedics, orthopedics and rehab. Rehab tends to be sort of over there as well. But what was interesting, is as I was looking at this second model and looking at the polycopharmacy, and I was considering diagnosis, and this isn't in the book. Um, I actually uh, went back to the data, and I don't know if I've ever told you this, Lance, but I went back to the data because I was thinking about those behavioral health patients, and I then I thought about this polycopharmacy, and I thought I wonder if within that Polyco Pharmacy, if there is a particular medication, because there were nine medications that we gathered data on. So I tested uh, uh, each of those medications individually. And what I found was, um, was the psychotropic drugs were hugely predictive of uh, falls. And I think in the mental health that uh, they, they said they give them so many medications that they're, they can hardly walk. So that's what was the reason. So that, that was helpful for them to see that. But my thought was now, if in behavioral health, psychotropic drugs are causing falls, I wonder if those on the critical care units and the and the med surge units, if those patients are taking psychotropic drugs? If they're also falling, and I actually found out that this model that explained thirty five point three percent, it actually went up to eighty six percent. Psychotropic drugs were huge. Now that's not even in this book. <laughs> that is, and and but I presented that to the, the chief nurse officer at the hospital, and she was like, "Oh my gosh, that is so good to know." But but, my, but the reason I even say that though is it's the conversation, like we're having here the conversation we have with your team that um, reveals the story for secondary analysis etc so um so lance i don't think i've told you that before did i and if i if you hadn't heard that what's what are your thoughts on on this
1: no yeah no thanks for sharing that with me uh no i don't think uh you shared that uh tidbit with me that is so interesting to hear Um, and I would think that you know with these predictive models you know once you implement them it's always good to go back and and revisit anything just to make sure it's it's never a set it and forget it at least in my career and in fact anything you do you realize very rarely can you set it forget it besides you know grandma's cornbread recipe. but uh, but yeah, th- that's, that's awesome to hear. Um, and in fact, right now, we're doing a lot of predictive modeling you know, stuff in our electronic medical record for where I work now. And it's something that we're actually real. I think we're just now realizing like, oh, yeah, we've had this running for a year. We should re- revisit some of this stuff and some of the criterion and see what else is out there to make sure that um, things are polished. And we're, we're identifying everything uh, and catching everything we should. Uh, the other thing I wanted to just make a quick comment on was, to, to to any teams out there looking at trying to accomplish something like this, the making sure that the results and the benefits, no matter how much later down the line that information comes out, gets back to the team of people who you know put this in practice, like all my fellow coworkers. Um, It makes a world of difference to to them and to us not just obviously yes seeing zero patients falls or the the large decrease in patient falls is a benefit of itself but when you hear it it goes beyond that and then you you know you're able to kind of say like wow just imagine you know how much more staff our hospital is able to now kind of hire or bring in or more resources that we can get in now that we We didn't have to spend that 1.6 million dollars on these on on treating you know post-fall patients and, and and lost you know that 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 revenue whereas now we get to put it either back into our system to give patients an even better experience by having more services and resources put into our own health system that they can benefit from so Um, that was also a big key. So no, and in fact, I plan on sharing that information about the polypharmacy stuff with some of the, some of the folks that still keep in touch with me, um, from my time, um, working on this project, because it'll, it'll, it'll energize them and kind of help them think too, uh, to apply something like that and whatever else they're working on today. So, so thank you, John.
0: Yep. And I actually have that in a PowerPoint so I can send that to you. Awesome. So for anybody that is listening to this podcast that would like a copy of that PowerPoint, there's no identifiers of the hospital or anything that um, can't be discussed because it reviews all of the predictors that we identified in that secondary analysis, and there was four predictors. So those of you that are listening to this podcast and would like a copy of that PowerPoint, send an email to podcast at healthcareenvironment.com, and I can send that to you. Now, the, the... what we've been talking about here lance i think is important to say is that the important part of having the staff hear the data and to have discussions about the data is to re re-spec- you're respecifying the model because you've solved the so you've solved the problem so no, mobility is no longer a predictor and diagnosis is no longer a predictor so what is predicting it so you unless you have a methodology for the model to be re-specified automatically, um, as I describe in my book, you're going to spend a lot of time redeveloping the model, and it's called re-specifying the model. So you want to create a structural model where you list all the variables and then uh, identify the measurement model, which are the variables you want to measure in your context, and then deploy that. But I would encourage anybody that is um, wanting to study this dy- the dynamics of predictors of outcomes, I would encourage you to um, set it up um, automatically so that uh, it, it recalculates, if you will, and re-specifies automatically. But that's described in the book if you want the steps.
1: Yeah, for, for other teams out there listening, uh, looking back at, you know, that project and and what we accomplished, I th- there were some lesson, l- lessons learned. You know, um, I think knowing what I know now, and and this could be just because electronic medical records have advanced considerably in the last what has been six years since I think you know we've been we've been doing this or maybe even a little bit longer than that um, is to not be afraid to try and reach out from just beyond your team. Um, there's other people and resources out there that can help you. And John was, a, was, a, was, a, was one of the prime examples of that, not even within our health system. And, and him and his cr- team came in and just, I mean, really put us in warp speed. And had, I, had we'd been uh, more resourceful, um, you know, like that manual collection that I did of all that data, I'm realizing looking back now, like, ah, shoot, you know, I, I probably didn't have to work that hard. Um, I could have reached out to the IT team that supports and is familiar with what the reporting capabilities are to maybe, who knows, maybe accomplish as much as 70, 70 75% of that data just off the cuff with you know a click of a button and a, and a few weeks to develop the report. And then our team just would have to just fill in the blanks and do a little, that little bit extra digging. So it doesn't have to be hard. Um, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And if it is seeming too hard, you know, step up, take a step back and find out if you're missing someone or something uh, to try and um, help you accomplish whatever it is you're trying to do. Um, That's just like the biggest message because, yeah, it's great to work hard, but man, it's even better if you work smarter. So.
0: (laughs) Well, and the people at your hospital, the people that uh, would pull data from Epic were fantastic. They were real team players. They didn't say I'm too busy or get in line. They would make time for you, sit down with you. And if you were organized with your model and you knew what you wanted, because they're very busy people. Mm -hmm. So if you can just say, these are the variables that I want, This is how it is currently collected. So you can show them yes or no, or it's on a Likert scale, or if it's, you know, so you can give them information and then they can have an idea by the time you're done with the meeting of the effort that that's going to take. So if you do your legwork and you present it to your IT person, um, I know. I agree. You're you're right on spot, Lance. With um, you know, working smarter, but the, you, you you can't use knowledge you don't have. So if you don't know about this stuff, you can't approach them. You you don't know where to go. So I think that's what's important is to identify what's your team of quality management, um, and we don't often think about on our quality about having an analyst, a statistician. Um, you know, some of these. More academic roles, uh, but those people that do mathematics, mathematics should tell a story. And if you're working with the people that are experiencing the story, your mathematical model will be correct.
1: To that point, and the stress working in IT now, that is a good point, John. That I do notice as a leader of an IT division that it's a lot easier to pick up the requests or ideas that are very polished and have good structure and and a lot of detailed information because I can give a good honest, good faith estimate as to whether we can fit that in and accomplish that for folks. Um, And then also just, we are such a data driven world nowadays that, yeah, I mean, there is stories, many stories to be told. It's, and and I feel like there's many opportunities of various things, not just in healthcare, where if if we could just sit down and study some data, um, we, we could, we could benefit from stories that are out there that have yet to be told. And, uh, there was one, you know, CEO of a hospital that I was working at where he loved saying this and he was a big finance guy. He was like, let the data set you free. And, you know, when he kind of said that, I said, man, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been borrowing that. I don't know if he quoted, you know, he probably quoted somebody else, but, um, I use that all the time with my team today because, we're data-driven, we make changes, and then we need to make sure we measure that it actually made a difference, so.
0: yeah. Now, the one thing that I think is important, Lance, and you've identified some of these words and phrases in your review, but I think some of the words that we utilize, it just become white noise, it's like static, things like data-driven, and, um, you know, just talking about data in itself, when people, Uh, people compare data to their experience. So if they are hearing the word data and their unit is using frequency graphs, well, then that's what they're thinking about. If they're using data and it's lean projects, but they're completely unengaging, then that's how they think about data. And I think in this conversation, we have identified many of the elements that make data resonate so it's actionable. Because if the staff don't get excited about the data you're telling them, they're not gonna act on it. And it won't resonate with them unless it includes the variables that they're experiencing. So I think it's important to continually or initially build the model that includes all the variables that the staff report. So that's your structural model. And then as you are Uh, you've developed your measurement model and you're studying those variables and identifying like we did in our falls project what was predicting falls and then the staff were like I knew this it's just good to hear it in a sequence and in a prioritization so I know that okay diagnosis was really important and mobility is really important and education is really important so it gave them tools that they already knew what to do because they're living it Um, But if you're only measuring a portion of the story based on a static model that you got from the literature, it's going to miss those contextual pieces that will cause the data to resonate. So I think it's important for us to um, not only uh, manage our data differently, but to um, do some sort of a meeting to say, we're going to tell your story about data and about your outcomes. And this is how we're going to do it. We want to hear all the things that you've experienced that are impacting this outcome. We're going to include that in our data management process. And then periodically, when we present the data and you solve the data, we want to continue to have a discussion with you about are there any other variables that that you're interacting with or experiencing that we're not talking about in our data management. I don't know if that's that is intended to reorganize a lot of the things that we're doing that we think have meaning but fall flat. So I think we have a lot of the pieces in place, but we I think we have to reorganize it within a team process to include the contextual and consider the dynamics as we solve the problems in an ongoing way.
1: Yeah, the one thing I would like to say that is, is Looking at the beginning of when my team was like we were just trying to figure out how to combat this and we had the idea of identifying key characteristics that would probably highlight whether a patient's at risk, we didn't come at it as, oh, we need data. You know, that really wasn't the in the uh, the vocabulary of the dialogue. It was just what are the characteristics? What are the things that we what are the assumptions that we can make right now? And at least just kind of throw on the wall. And that was kind of like how we kind of got into it. And I think the data part of it was more on me. And I was behind the scenes looking at that. with And then you, John, looking at it with you. Um, whereas it kind of didn't bore them down or have to like make them feel like it was just this big, huge math problem. Um, and I think that kind of helped, too, to kind of, yeah, at first, you know not make it sound like that's going to be the plan up front and that's what this is all about.
0: But you were letting them tell their you were letting them tell their story. And yep. so as they were telling the story, that's where you were finding the variables. And that's exactly what I'm talking yep. about. Is just yep. let them talk. Yep. And as they're talking, you just record and you're making your structural model as they talk. And so this is where you specify model specification. This is where you specify for that context because a palliative care unit is very different than an emergency room. So their story is going to be very different. So as you are going from unit to unit and gathering those stories, you're building a, a, I mean, it can be up to 400 variables. I mean, I have a heart failure decreasing readmissions for heart failure and I have about 400 variables. Well, there's no way that, and see, that's one of the problems is, is it, and then you have to organize those variables by um, like department or there's there's different things you can organize it to have a conversation, but it's all about getting the story and every unit will have a different story. So if you're telling someone else's story to the staff, they're gonna be bored out of their mind because it doesn't resonate. But exactly what you're saying though, Lance, if you just listen to the story, gather the variables, then you have a specified model for that context. And then um, you end up having a real big story for your hospital, but it's, it's in little, you know, subunits. It's not, not patients aren't falling in the ED uh, for the same reason they're falling in rehab. So, yeah, no, I think it, it is really important in an organization to have someone that has a passion for, for this, for data like Lance. Um, he had a passion to solve this. He heard the staff. I mean, that's just good leadership. You're never going to have good outcomes if your leadership doesn't understand that good data is needed and that the leadership is allowing their, their, you know, um, leaders, their other leaders to, to lead. And here, um, Lance had the opportunity to, um, lead within data, but, um, like I work I work across the, I work in 46 countries I've worked in 46 countries and I've worked in about 400 different organizations and having a leader that you see gets data is very rare but what's interesting is the leader doesn't have to understand data the leader has to identify that oh I think this is different this this could work and so the organizations that I've had the most success with When they hear the staff engaged with data management because it is story and that the leader is respecting their story and recording their story to study their story, um, this is this is very important. And that's exactly what Lance was doing. Lance was listening to them. He was recording their story when he found me uh, when, you know, uh, it, as I'm someone that was an expert in management of data, um, he made sure to uh, take that opportunity because we were looking for someone to step forward. And he stepped forward and said, boy, this would be a great project for us. So he wasn't he, he found a solution. And so then when I was able to work with him, I mean, of course he did all the legwork and collecting the data. I just did the fun part of analyzing it. Um, so, uh, but it, it, it comes back to all, all being a team, but having a leader that understands that data can work and that they just are persistent in finding that um, methodology that creates data that resonates. And it resonated because Lance collected the story and got the variables that were within that context. And that's what we studied uh, and were able to identify so that they could improve the operations.
1: So it was working with John was different. Now I've worked with other um, contractors, third party, and to this day, you know, I work with other, you know, third party applications and vendors. And when John came in, he's, he, he's, he, he not only did he talk to walk, but he also backed it up. Um, and I, at that time, you know, as a, an assistant manager, you're kind of like in the, like the, the, um, arp- armpit of like leadership. You don't, you're kind of testing it out. You're not sure if you want to really go the next step and become a manager or go that route. It's almost like I was just wondering and trying to figure out what kind of person I wanted to be, or what kind of, team member or what my contribution was going to be to the health system and you know John came in and helped fill in a lot of gaps for me and got me excited and mentored me and coached me up and I you know I don't think I ever thanked you enough John for everything you did for me um, personally for my career because I mean working with you is basically led me to now being manager of an IT a division of IT for the health system I work for um uh, but with that being said, it was John. Not not only was invested of in, in you know getting this data, but he was investing in me. He was investing in our team, and he was invest in like he was investing in our patients. And and yes, the passion, the passion. He he didn't he wasn't shy about letting me know just how excited. I mean, I I seen you a handful of times, John, but. I mean, I could hear the passion was palpable through the phone, you know, in our conversations um, and seeing how excited you were getting um, and, and the, the positive feedback I was getting from you just kind of energized me to keep going, even when, you know, things got tough or priorities were starting to clash. Um, so, yeah, it's, that's also important too. If whatever teams are out there, regardless with who you're working with, make sure you get someone that you feel like you know, you'd get along with and that you could trust, um, and that you, they're really in it for the right reasons. Um, because there's definitely times and, you know, there's people that try and fake it and, and people can read right through it. Um, sometimes you, you do feel like you're just a, a paycheck or a dollar sign to some people, um, when you're working with them, uh, they're outside your system. Uh, but I did not get one hint of that with working with John. And, and if anything, I feel like, um, we took more from him than he got from us. In all honesty, so it was a, it was a it was a it was a more of a win for us in our eyes um, working with him. So,
0: well, that's great. Well, I think what was helpful for both Lance and I and the team is both Lance and I are nurses, and so we're able to we we understand the operations of the bedside. We understand when patients are. Uh, falling, um, you know, and, and dealing with those outcomes, etc. So, both of us being nurses, I think was very helpful in managing the data and telling this using data to tell the story. So, but thanks, Lance, for your kind words. That's that's nice to hear. Uh, but it's in, it's important, I think, to um, have someone that's not just understanding data, but that understands the story behind the data, which I do. So and it was it was exciting for me to have someone that was so dedicated to the uh, complete data and actually carrying through. But that's again, what I've already stated is that leadership matters. and you have to have good leadership that pays attention to um, uh, is this going to be just another root cause analysis or another case study? that is isolated to um, some specific scenario, or is this going to inform more broadly for each of the units? And that's what it did. Lance, thanks so much for being on our podcast today. It was fun to uh, revisit this uh, important project that we shared together and to revisit the enthusiasm and the impact that we made uh, uh, um, on decreasing falls. So as we're closing today, I would like to know if you have any closing comments or thoughts uh, in reflection of our conversation today on our podcast.
1: Yeah, definitely the uh, camaraderie of working with another nurse, that definitely was nice too. And Something that you guys mentioned earlier, John, that it takes a certain type of person, maybe, and and maybe there's teams out there or leaders out there hearing this and saying, yeah, who's going to be that guy or that gal to really kind of put the effort in here and be the driver to this? I would just, in in being a leader, looking back at different personalities and roles of people I've hired over the years – for something like this, I, I would recommend that you try and identify someone, you know, in like an assistant manager role, someone who's getting a taste and understanding a lot of the leadership concepts and things that are out there and, you know, kind of drinking that type of Kool-Aid, but yet they're still close enough to the actual streets and knows what's going on out there and can make sense. And it kind of like helps. They're usually the, tr- the, the, fo- the folks that translate for the frontline staff, you know, what leadership is wanting to have and, and how they can actually apply it to not only work, but just in life, as well as taking the raw emotions and feedback you can get from a, you know, from a frontline staffer and, and polish it up and and, and put some more, a little more spin on it, if you will, to help it make sense to leadership for them to understand and be able to identify that there's an opportunity that they might be able to help and remove as far as a barrier or concern. Um, and, and yeah, data, you know, having a math, you know, passion, that helps too. But what I find is, is, you know, math isn't the sexiest of subjects per se. Um, But when people do have a chance to appreciate it, regardless if they think they like it or not, then they, they start to understand, appreciate it and understand its value. So I wouldn't get too hung up on that.
0: I would like to thank all of the listeners to this podcast for this episode on decreasing patient falls and how we worked in a team to um, make a positive impact using predictive analytics. This story, so to speak, is in the book, Using Predictive Analytics to Improve Healthcare Outcomes. That is being published by Wiley. It is a compilation of 18 chapters, four sections. It's 45 contributors from nine countries. I am the lead editor for this book, and I am proud to announce that it will be released in June of this year. Pre-sales will begin in May of this year. This book will provide many insights into the conversation from today. It includes the 16 steps that I use for enacting these predictive analytics, including the unfolding of unique stories related to outcomes. So thank you for joining us on the Science of Caring podcast. We look forward to having you join us on future podcasts as well.